You're listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit Irreverent FM for more content from my friends. Hello, hello, and welcome to Bad Words, an ex-evangelical podcast where we give toxic theology the read that it deserves by taking another look at some of the books that have been given major influence in evangelical Christianity. I am Janice Legata, and this is a meeting of the Bad Book Club. We are reading The Bait of Satan by John Bevere, biting into it one chapter at a time. I'll read the opening paragraph and give a few thoughts, and then join one of the members of the Bad Book Club for a discussion. In the end, I'll read the closing paragraph and give some closing thoughts, all with the intention of leaving you free to think your own thoughts about the chapter, the book, and all things really so. Without further ado, let's get into... Chapter 12, Revenge, The Trap. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Romans 12, 17. As we clearly saw in the last chapter, holding on to an offense of unforgiveness is like holding a debt against someone. When one person is wronged by another, he believes that a debt is owed to him. He expects a payment of some sort, whether monetary or not. Our court system exists to avenge wrong or injured parties. Lawsuits result from people trying to satisfy their debts. When a person has been hurt by another, human justice says they will stand trial for what they have done and pay if found guilty. The unforgiving servant wanted his fellow servant to pay what he owed, so he sought his compensation in the court of law. This is not the way of righteousness. Okay, so full disclosure, I read a little extra for this episode. That was the first two paragraphs. Because going with JB's court theme here, I wanted to give you ample evidence for why I'm getting in that ass right away. I want you to see the amount of lying, just straight up lying, he is doing straight out of the gate. He starts out by saying, as we clearly saw in the last chapter, when no the fuck we did not, I haven't seen anything clearly in this book, John, not in the last chapter, not ever. And then he says that holding on to an offense of unforgiveness is like holding a debt against someone, not holding on to unforgiveness, but an offense of unforgiveness. So he still has nothing to say to or about the people who are out here doing unforgivable things. Somehow feelings about wrong things done have skyrocketed past the actual wrong things in terms of evil evil he opens this chapter with a verse that says repay no one evil for evil and then starts talking about unforgiveness and the court system as if seeking justice is repaying evil for evil as if seeking justice is evil he says that our court system exists to avenge wrong and injured parties and does it is that why our court system exists not to seek justice but to enact vengeance He says when a person has been hurt by another, human justice says they will stand trial for what they've done and pay if found guilty. And like, while that is an extremely oversimplified explanation of human justice, I mean, what what does he think it should be? And then he ties the story of the unforgiving servant to our American idea of a court system and says that he sought his compensation in the court of law, but no, he did not. There was no court in that story. John Bevere is just making shit up and lying. He's lying. He's saying things that aren't true and that I don't think he truly believes. He says, so he sought his compensation in the court of law. This is not the way of righteousness. And what? Says who? What is the way of righteousness? Just blind forgiveness and absolution of villains? This chapter, this theology is so bad. It is so disingenuous and it is so dangerous. And it's all bullshit. He pulls a huge Jesus juke pretty early in the chapter, basically trying to say that no one has ever suffered the way that Jesus suffered for us, which, no offense to Jesus. Sorry to this man. It's just not true. Jesus died a horrible death, but so have a lot of other people in human history. On the day that Jesus died, two other men died the same way. I'm not saying it wasn't bad, but just as bad and worse things have happened to people before, during, and after Jesus died. So no. I'm not giving Jesus extra credit for that, especially because none of us asked him to do that. We didn't make up these rules. God did. So the idea that I'm supposed to be thankful to and love a cruel God for being cruel to someone else to play by the rules that he made up, that's crazy. Crazy and ineffective. John Bevere's whole thing is that I should blindly forgive others whether or not they ever apologize, ever repent, ever ask me for forgiveness because that's what Jesus did for me. And that's not true. He says, If Jesus had waited for us to come to him and apologize, saying, We were wrong, you were right, forgive us, he would not have forgiven us from the cross. But if Jesus isn't waiting for us to say pretty much exactly that, then what the hell is the salvation prayer about? This whole book, 
This whole idea of Satan and the bait and us eating our way to hell stemmed from the fact that even though Jesus died, that forgiveness only works for people who ask for it and then live for it, who give up their lives to make up for him giving up his. If the Old Testament idea of justice was eye for an eye, this New Testament idea is life for a life. And how is that different from the human justice that John Bevere thinks is evil? This is, this is so stupid. And I hate do I hate John Bevere? No, he's not even worth it. I feel sorry for him and I hate the system that has allowed him to exist so stupidly. P.S. I do need to issue a content warning as John Bevere invokes the story of Tamar, Absalom, and Amnon, so this episode does contain discussions about sexual assault. Taking a page from them boys, them dirty rotten church kids, please consider yourself part of the jury as we join John Bevere in a hell court of his own design with book club member number 12. Hi everybody, I'm Dan. I am currently in Rosemont, Minnesota. It is a suburb of St. Paul and I am a high school teacher. We'll just leave it at that, just public employee. I My ex-evangelical journey started I don't know, five years ago, six years ago now, when uh, my wife and I at the time looked at each other and were like, what the hell are we doing? She took a leap to say we are done. And then I finally felt safe to come out. And it's just kind of been like a journey in mental health and creative expression ever since. For me, like finding your podcast late last spring was kind of when I started having some intelligent thoughts and realized I wasn't like the only person experiencing these things and that there are so many different sides of this coin, but also so many common experiences. And then I feel like I started to, I don't know, kind of do some of the healing work, so to speak. So yeah, I am kind of a literature nerd that might come up today's conversation, coffee connoisseur, yoga teacher, you know, just all around magical person. So, ooh, high school teacher, literature nerd, <laughs> taking on John. Yeah, it is not going to go well for JB. Oh. So the bait of Satan. Yes. When did you first become aware that this book existed? Um. So I will say I left this out of my intro. I did used to work for a certain evangelical para organization. Let's just say I ran with a certain crew if you know what I'm saying. And word on the street was that at one point, John Bevere was like a success story of the ministry. Like here was somebody who was saved in his dorm room and went on to start a church empire and write all these books and do all these workshops. So I feel like I had this sense that there was this like charismatic writer who said a lot of authoritative things that kind of shaped the evangelical bubble. But I will say, like, I don't know that I've ever picked up one of his books or, like, was at a conference that I knew he was at and, like, chose to go to his session because it was him. Like, not to say maybe he was there or maybe I have heard him preach or something, but I just didn't put two and two together. I believe this book was on my bookshelf during my missionary days, but... I don't know that I, I have read it because it felt felt familiar, but it didn't feel like I have read this before. Like so many things in evangelicalism, it, it, it gets boiled down to like a tweet that we all just subconsciously memorize and don't know why. I feel like some of that was resonating, but like I was like, I've never picked this one up. Yeah, at this point, I mean, I've read the whole book now. And I'm like, I know, I know this book and I still can't say for sure whether I ever read it before. Mm -hmm. Maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. Yeah. But I have now. Definitely. So, so how did you, how did you feel about the prospect of reading a chapter of this? I felt like I got a, an opportunity to commune with myself 10 years ago. Like, I feel like 10 years ago when I was in deep and I was getting paid by this machine and I was going to church eight times a week and like anything that would I would have read that would have like made me hate myself a little bit more like would have been right up my alley so I'm not surprised that it was at one time on my shelf of like maybe I'll read this someday but then I like as kind of the the reader that I am now I'm like wow like a whole world of libraries and bookshops and like this is the kind of stuff i was reading honey like it just 
<laughs> it's just like sad. Yeah. Ooh. All right. So what chapter did you have and what was it about? I had chapter 12 and it was about the revenge trap. Ooh. Ooh. Yes. So I, I hate everything about this. Yeah. So even his little, you know, at the beginning of every chapter, he has a little takes a little phrase out of the chapter and then have a little testimonial yes and his his thing at the top of this chapter we are so we are to be so far removed from avenging ourselves that we willingly risk being taken advantage of again and i said this was written by a man i mean the whole book is very oh just going into this chapter i was like oh i feel like i'm gonna be raging this whole time and i was yep and and can I say I looked at that blur that whatever that is that giant bold face text at the top of the chapter, and I did what I would ask my middle school students who are struggling readers to do. I would say cut out all of the words you don't recognize and see if you can get at the concept. But when I did that, do you know what I landed on? I landed on something really unfortunate. That's like, you should be so far removed from yourself that you are taken advantage of. And then I felt really scared because I'm like, if this is the core of what this chapter is about, I'm not going to like it. And it's cost a lot of money to take therapy and (laughs) work through this. And it's just, here's the evidence. Just a product of this thing we call church. Ooh, and I would say that that is exactly what this chapter is about. Like, I mean, that's what the book mm-hmm. is about. But this chapter, yeah, yeah, it's right there. And can I just say, I love how he invokes Satan without ever defining, <laughs> ever putting it into context. Just like we are all supposed to know exactly what he's talking about. Now, if I was not, like, if I was in, like, a more... It's just buzzwords, conservative, charismatic church. I'm sure I would be thinking of the scary monster that's tempting me to sin, to take me away from the gospel, right? We've all kind of dealt with that. But he never once talks about like the Hebrew asatan, the internal accuser, right? He never once talks about the as a metaphor or even really defines what he means in, in I can't believe I'm going to say this, but like, in the realm of spiritual warfare, like, who really is this character, Satan, right? And I I don't know, I really struggled with that. Like, if you are going to invoke the powers of darkness against me to put me in my place, you better have some kind of clean definition of what that is. Otherwise, it's just this amorphous draw your own conclusion, but whatever conclusion you draw, it's something scary and terrible and going to take you away from the love of Jesus. Right. And I'll say, it's not that he like doesn't define it in this chapter and defines it elsewhere. He doesn't. Mm-hmm. He never, never defines. And like, I've never even thought about that. And like, in terms of Satan, because I've been looking, looking for other words for other definitions. Like he never, I can't remember which chapter it is, maybe chapter 10 or 11, where he Webster's dictionary defines, um, I can't remember what word it was, but it's the first time in the book he references like the dictionary. So I'm like, oh, you you do know what it is. You, do know that it you is. have one. Like, you have one. You've seen one. You've heard of it. Because he never defines offense. No. He never defines, like you just said, Satan. Like I just yesterday. So maybe, or maybe it's this chapter. But I like circled the word repent. It was the first time I had seen it mm-hmm. in this book. He never refi- defines repentance. He never defines revenge. He never defines avenge. Like he's just using all these words mm-hmm. and you're giving no definitions. Which is a post-structuralist critique, critic's nightmare. Like, you know, there is no perfect concept. There is no universal definition of big feelings. Without right. defining it, you let us all run with it in a million different directions and a book that he is claiming to provide so much healing with all of these weird testimonials by the people with the initials. Um, <laughs> like, it just, I, I just find it so hard to believe that there's any practical application other than let yourself be steamrolled and somehow find satisfaction in that in that experience and... 
just let me throw a bunch of buzzwords your way. Yeah. And to evoke so much Bible even without a nod to the historical context, the linguistic context, partial Bible verses, a chunk of the Beatitudes as if that is the only thing that Jesus said that day. You know, it's just very like, I've been out of it for a long time and I still am like, hmm, it leaves something to be desired. Absolutely. So let's start going through it. Yeah. What initial thoughts? So I liked, I think you sent me like a page of the first chapter, just his pseudo definition of offense. Mm -hmm. There are two, basically two types of people. Those who have been unjustly treated and those who believe they have been treated unjustly. So basically like Karens, the Karens of the world. But he never, at least in my chapter, like never brings that up again. Like, hey, this is a time when you have been treated unjustly as a person of color, as a queer person, as a woman, as whatever, and you have right to be offended and seek remedy. There's none of that. So it's like, oh, by the way, sometimes people are offended justly, you exist. But most of you all are basically Karens. And it just, I wrote in my notes, like, these to me are the megachurch pastors that think social distancing is somehow persecution. Right. Like, these are the parents, I don't know what you have um, in your area if you watch the school board meetings, but we have like a lot of scared parents right now. Motions run high. We're not getting any business done. But like, to me, that, that, fear, that thinking that I am the victim, that that all falls into that second category, which is like a nightmare. If you if you are at all prone to any type of anxiety, like getting into that headspace, you're just going to spiral pretty quickly. So like, I guess I do buy that there are these different levels or different kinds of experiences around being offended. And I'm thinking, hmm, he's going to lead us in to some nice conversation about where are you putting your mental energy? Why are you putting your mental energy? To- no, no, we didn't get there at all. So then I got into the chapter and it was basically very quickly um, taken into the fact that uh, this is a chapter about letting yourself be steamrolled or you become a vengeful monster and there's no in between. There's no in between. No in between. Yeah, I have, I have so many, so many notes. Where, how, how do we... I don't know, like, don't invoke the first group without giving us some sort of remedy or justification even to say, yes, you've identified the problem. And yes, the system is harming you. This is very valid. Like, you know, and I feel like that's what a lot of us are doing in the ex-evangelical space right now is realizing that we are in all category two, right? The people who think they've been offended, even though... Like, I think you said earlier, like, this is clearly written by a man in power, like, <laughs> to, to, to make the rest of us all doubt ourselves. Right. And so jumping in he, quickly into the chapter, he talks about don't let the sun go down on your anger. Right. He never talks about it, it's basically like if you've let the sun go down on your anger, oh, be careful because you're going to want to, like, kill somebody. You're going to let it take a hold of you or, or worse satan can enter into your mind and make you do all of these scary things and the next thing you know you're in hell but what if we just cast that into some more of a mental health shell right this is where my mind went like when you are offended take a good hard look at yourself either squash it which people in minnesota are really bad at that by the way like minnesota nice we avoid conflict uh like none other um but like squash it Or realize it's not that important and let it go. And if you are pulling yourself down, your internal accuser is is, is pulling you into the spiral of doom, let's do something about that. And then if we realize it's not just my feelings, let's go after the system. Let's go after healing. Let's find community and do something proactive so you're not alone in suffering. Right. But again, it's just... I'm guilty for having emotions. You are guilty for having an experience of the world in which people rub you the wrong way sometimes. You are guilty for feeling like you don't fit into the system, but you're dangerous for asking questions. That, to me, was the first half of the chapter. Yeah. Like you said, there's no no nuance. And yeah, there's no middle ground. Like you were either, like you said, being steamrolled 
where you were out here just enacting extreme vengeance. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't, even with us as ex-evangelicals, speaking to the church, I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, I'll, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm serious about burning the church down, <laughs> but only because we've been talking at you guys for years and you don't want to change. Mm-hmm. But if you wanted to change, and if tomorrow you were like, no, we've taken on your list of things and here, here's what we're going to do to you know address these things, fine, we'll take the matches away. You you can continue to be here. Mm-hmm. I'm like none of us, none of us want to destroy anything. We're asking you to stop. Just stop what you're doing. Stop doing harm. <laughs> <laughs> right. But we're not even asking for, for justice at this point. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, he opens the chapter talking about holding a debt against someone. And I'm like, no, there are debts against there. Sometimes you do owe people, you know, where, where is the repentance? Where's the restitution in this? Mm-hmm. Like sometimes you do owe a debt. I think the church owes a lot of people a debt that we're not even asking them to pay yet. Mm-hmm. You owe people therapy money. You owe people their tithes back. You owe a debt. We're not even asking for that. We're just mm-hmm. asking, can you please stop? Not even for us. We're gone. Mm-hmm. For the people who are still there moving forward, can you stop? It's like, there's so much, there's there's more middle ground than anything. And he sees none of that. Right. You either blind forgiveness, you just need to let people do what they're going to do, let go of them for what they did to you. Or yeah, you're out here murdering. You, you're a vengeance monster. It's like, no, JB, most of us aren't that. Mm-hmm. And if, if you have that fear, like, I think it's because you know that's what you would do, mm-hmm. John Bevere. You know, where you, if you were to be crossed, yeah, you probably would be a murdering monster. <laughs> a murdering monster who loves the Lord. Everybody's everybody's <laughs> favorite kind of figure. They've done so well in history. Um, <laughs> they have thrived, yeah. Oh, God. I'm sorry to make light of that. That took a really dark turn. I, I think, like, as meaning-making people, we want to cast ourselves into a story that makes sense, right? We want community. We want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. The most beautiful moments happen in the context of things we can't always control. But to step fully into that embodied human experience with all of your emotions intact, somebody's going to rub you the wrong way, right? right? And you sometimes have to just know that that's part of the human experience. You are not going to turn into a murdering monster because you don't like so-and-so, right? You are not going to turn into a murdering monster because you're upset that someone else beat you out for whatever the next prestigious volunteer position is. There'll be another one next week. But the ego is never put into context as like, yes, you have this external relationship to the world. You have an idea of how you want things to feel. And sometimes that's going to get ruffled up. 90% of the time, that's probably our own issue to deal with. But it's that 10% where we are being wronged, harmed, and pushed into a corner where we are not allowed to be our own person. It gets really dangerous, Janice, don't you think? Absolutely. And here as as people who are part of marginalized identities, we know what that is. Mm -hmm. And we know what it is also, also to have to have this white man in power talking to us and telling us how we need to react to mm-hmm. the things that have been done to us historically and now. And like he, the whole book, like he takes these stories and, you know, we'll get into the story he's using yep. for this, but he just lifts them. He lifts them out of all context. He takes them mm-hmm. out. He doesn't use them in the context they, they were in originally. And he doesn't, put them even in our context. It's like, he just takes these people, he just lifts them and they're just hanging up here in this nebulous space mm-hmm. where, where he gets to decide everything about this story and everything that matters mm-hmm. in this story and everything that this story is saying. And it's like, and that is what is done to marginalized communities, mm-hmm. marginalized people all the time. Telling me, no, it doesn't, doesn't matter the context you came from. It doesn't even matter the context we're in. Your identity has to be in Christ. Your identity Mm -hmm. has to be in what I decide matters. And most of what happens to you just doesn't really matter. Your feelings don't matter. In fact, your freedom in Christ is judged by how well you can conform and how much free labor, free money we can get from you. And don't even ask about our thoughts on gender or how we define marriage, or even gender roles. I remember 
be like back in 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 my time like feeling really conflicted about this idea of biblical gender roles this is the role of a man and this is how he expresses himself and this is the role of a woman and how she expresses herself and men and women can't be friends because it's just gonna lead to impure things and like here i am just kind of like this softer bookish like i wanted to go hang out with the girls like and it was always raising these eyebrows and you know oh well you can be friends out in public, but don't invite anyone back because you have to be above reproach. Like, and I remember like feeling really conflicted and talking to my leadership about it. And it was, it was this, it was, Mm -hmm. you're offended. You have this skewed view of the world because of what culture is telling you to think you need to fix yourself. And then it just becomes this like performative solution in which you pass for being free in Christ, but you never actually feel happy about that decision but you're in the middle of the in crowd you're getting the opportunities to perform on stage you're getting the recognition so it feels like it should somehow be satisfying and that's where the nameless testimonies again of like i'm sure they're all the same i read this book when i was at a dark time and our church was about to split and then because i read this book i gave it to an elder and because i gave it to an elder now we're all fine but like are you just turning into sims like do you remember the game sims like are you just kind of wandering around half living because you're now afraid of feeling any emotion or engaging in any sort of debate discourse or even conflict resolution it's just better to live like this drunken empty shell and call it freedom because that looks better for about 10 minutes from the outside until you realize you've walked into pleasantville like that's how i would summarize this chapter (laughs) welcome to pleasantville oh god where it is not all that pleasant for a lot of people not at all so let's let's uh talk about the the bible story he chooses oh god (laughs) for (laughs) this chapter oh can i just say going into this i used to i used to want to be jewish that used to be like the joke you know i went to a few hanukkah parties and a passover seder as a child and i was like these rituals are so fun and there's like such a reverence and a community and a tradition and like here I am just like raising my hands and that's it. Like, and the way that white American pastors take the old Testament and turn it into something so dead and irrelevant is so sad to me because the Hebrew Bible in the context, and I'm not even going to speak to this because I only know what I've experienced and it's very little, but it is so much richer in its original language, in the ritual, in the way that it's debated and discussed. And I just want to say, I think it's so sad that we're about to go into this very one-dimensional reading of a story that may or may not be historically accurate, but if you take it on a human level, it's as compelling as any Shakespeare story or epic poem. We're just not allowed to have an analysis that takes us to its humanity. Because it's been weaponized. It's, you know, it's been made that this is the only way you can look at it, lest you are taking the bait of Satan, right? And so I just think it's so hard for me to go into a discussion of something, of a story like this, because of the way it's just so stripped from context and stripped from beauty. It is. And I think growing up in the church, we are introduced to these stories already knowing who the hero is supposed to be and based on what the ending is. And so in this story, it was kind of nice to read, kind of read it because I mean, it's been years since I've read the Bible consistently mm-hmm. and especially, so I haven't run across this story, but I'm like, I know this story and it was nice to, to be able to come at it just from a different view and be able to be like, no, David is, was for a long time. And especially at this point, David was a dick. Mm-hmm. Like David is not a good dude. And when you can strip it from, no, we have to think of him as the man after God's own heart. And I'm like, no, we all have good moments. And yeah, maybe he was at that moment, but it wasn't like this blanket mm-hmm. endorsement of everything, you know, he did. And so it's like, this is such a beautiful story. Like this could have been taken, put into Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. 
and allowed that these characters be who they are and the storyline to play out as it is. And it would have been a tragedy. Mm-hmm. Like it wouldn't have been this triumphant look how David succeeded, you know, how God, and I'm like, no, this is a tragedy. This mm-hmm. is injustice. And David is a bad king. Mm-hmm. Like he's a bad father. He's just a bad guy at this point. And we should be allowed to read this story that way. Mm-hmm. And as you know, not the reading that John Bevere gives. Not obviously. At all. <laughs> so it, you know, it's basically, it's a story of David, Absalom, Amnon, and Tamar. And so David's kids, Amnon, Tamar, and Absalom, all his children. Amnon tricks Tamar into coming over, rapes her. And then as a woman in that time, she basically is, you know, no good to anyone anymore. Mm -hmm. So her life has been ruined. So her brother, Absalom, is upset about that. He waits for David to do something about it. David doesn't. And then Absalom ends up murdering Amnon. Absalom runs off. And he starts, you know, he wins the heart of the people. He basically, I I don't even want to say he starts rallying people. I'm like, no, I think he's, there's a line in here where he says, you know, Absalom, he seemed concerned for the people. The Bible says he stole the hearts of Israel from his father. But was he genuinely concerned for them or was he seeking a way to overthrow David, the one who had offended him? I was like, why are we acting like both things can't be true? I think he, he genuinely loved these people, genuinely wanted something better for them. And yeah, was planning to overthrow his mm-hmm. father to be that better thing. Uh, so eventually he doesn't, he gets caught up, he gets killed. And so David triumphs in this story because he keeps his throne. And, you know, John JB's reading is that Absalom basically killed himself through his offense. Mm-hmm. And David, David was in the right because David, you know, wasn't offended. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that's a really right. flat reading of that story. Thoughts. I, again, so I will tell you, I just, it's so fun to have the theaters open again. And I just went to my first, like, professional show. Shout out to the Classical Actors Ensemble in Minneapolis. Um, They just did an amazing Hamlet. And I went last Sunday. And then I read this. And I was, and it was just like you said about Game of Thrones. Like, this could have just been a tragedy where we take the characters at face value. And there's good and there's bad and there's threads of political power and threads of emotion and it all tangles together into the story we have. And I guess I was just really struck at the contrast of seeing such a fantastic, relevant show performed and then a story that is equally human, equally as messed up, equally Mm -hmm. as dark, but then made to be just like, see, David won and it's all Absalom's fault that he ended up in the situation that he ended up in. I would watch this movie. I would read this book if somebody gave all the characters justice in their context. Right. You know, I don't even think he addressed really Tamar at all other than she just simply existed. I think you gave her more of a reading in your retelling than than JB gives her in his analysis. And here's the thing I wrote about Absalom, for better or for worse. I don't think he would try to rise up against his own family if he did not believe it was the right thing to do. Right. And I don't think royalty, I I don't know, would that be the right term? Like royalty, when you are next in a line of inheritance, I don't think you try to mess that up for yourself unless you really believe that's the right thing to do. Right. Right. This is a, a situation where he literally had nothing, mm-hmm. nothing to gain from this. Like he's already, you're already a prince. You're already, you have, you have all the things. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's a good chance it's, it's coming to you anyway. Mm-hmm. So yeah, which is the same, the same thing that I say about, you know, all of us speaking to the church. Like, what do we have to gain mm-hmm. in this? And I, maybe this is the first time when I've been able to, to read it and you know this is his retelling so it isn't even the the actual bible passage but like to be able to kind of like freely empathize with absalom Mm -hmm. and to be like no i think he was he was wronged Mm -hmm. in the story a lot of people were wronged in this story and one of them was not david and what what if it's a both and like sorry that i'm stuck on this hamlet example but like part of what makes hamlet such a compelling character is he is so multifaceted and everybody plays him differently. Why can't Absalom and David 
also be portrayed as multi-faceted, tragic characters who, by circumstance or conflict or mental state or whatever it was, were part of this big, complicated mess, right? You don't just rouse the masses against the king if you don't have something compelling to say. Maybe it wasn't good. We don't know, right? The, like, the English translations are so good about being like, and then the people supported him. Okay, well, what was that? <laughs> like, can we flesh that out a little bit? Like, can you give me a little bit of the, 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 what does this mean in the original language? Were they excited? Were they following him because that's where the money was? Like, how this so quickly, I think he starts, he jumps like on page, I didn't write down the page, um, but he jumps to like this story of a church, like a, a pastor who splits from his church. And then he's like, my thing is, we need to figure out if you're David or Absalom in this situation. And you're like, weird. Like, why Why do we need to, like, now, now we use their name to represent this one singular experience, even though I'm pretty sure there are, like, chapters and poems and references to these people, like, throughout a lot of scripture. Right. You know, I'm not an expert in the book of Samuel or anything like that. So, like, I, I can't tell you exactly how often they come up, but I feel like they're not just these one and done right. people. But yet, like, the most important thing about them in this moment, in this reading, is, like, you're either wrongfully vengeant or mm-hmm. you are supporting the powers that be for better or worse because that's what God calls you to do. And only one is good. Right. And that... I isn't life to me because even yeah even as he's talking about that minister i pointed out to him the difference between absalom and david now absalom stole the heart of others because he was offended with his leader david encouraged others to stay loyal to saul even though saul was attacking him and then i was like not letting someone kill saul is not the same as being loyal Mm -hmm. to him and like david had that conviction of his own on himself (laughs) not i can't kill saul like so don't don't kill him on my behalf but like me telling people don't kill dan is not me being best (laughs) friends with dan like i will say now don't kill john bevere you murdering monsters don't kill john bevere do i like john bevere no do i support his book no but me not wanting you to murder him is not the same. It's not the same loyal. loyalty. It's not the same yeah. as lifting him up. Right. But there's none of that, none of that nuance. It's not that you are either for me or you're against me. And if you're not murdering me, you must be for you me. You must support my message and think I'm doing a great job. Yeah, that's not so. John, what world do you live in? Like it's mm-hmm. yeah, it's all or nothing. You murder me or support everything that I do. There is no no in between. It's no middle ground. And that's where I would love to see this performed, right? As a play yes. or a movie. Like, what are all those conversations that don't make it into the historical account or the prophetic account? that we know as scripture because it's not like the passage of time is only these important moments right they had to have their meals and their conversations and this is royalty managing armies ruling kingdoms in participating in the religious life of israel like there is so much more that goes unsaid that would make this a fascinating story because I'm sure there would be moments we would all feel for each of these players yeah, and relate such, to them. It's such a, a rich story. Mm-hmm. Like it really is. And John, you know, he, throughout the whole book, he'll take these characters and he'll put his thoughts into them. So he'll say, oh, they were thinking, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. So with Absalom, he's like, perhaps these were his thoughts. My father is hailed by the people. And I'm like, who, what, again, what language are we speaking in? Mm -hmm. John, none of us are talking about, you know, oh, the president is hailed. Like just speak English, John, or or don't speak English, you know, but they're blind to his true nature. He is only a self-seeking man who uses God as a cover-up. You know, my father has committed adultery with the wife of one of his most loyal men. Then he covered his sin by killing the man who was loyal to him. And I'm like, well, we know this story because we've read the Bible. Does Absalom really know this much of his father's history? Mm -hmm. 
And then from this context, I'm like this committed adultery, that was rape. There are two rapes in this in this story. That was, you know, power power dynamics and taking this woman, raping her, which adds some more shading to David. Why would he care about this rape? He didn't care about that one. Right. And if you are the king and that you are these are your sons, why can this prince not take whatever woman he wants? and do whatever so then i'm like oh is absalom a feminist like absalom is out here actually caring mm-hmm. he's the first man in this story to actually care about what has happened to a woman like but it's all of this is gone none of this matters right. to john and we're so led as the reader in this summary to feel one specific way like i'm i'm disappointed in myself that it took you and your analysis just now for me to get there like it was in the text i just wasn't allowed to think that about the text right and i love on page 143 the lesson is let's see if you were david or absalom in this situation when you were upset with your church when you were upset with the powers that be did you leave alone did you leave quietly Or did you bring other people with you and rally up support? Because these two questions can put you into the grand, you know, I guess we can divide everybody up. They're either Davids or Absaloms with how they deal with offense and the desire to revenge. You either leave quietly and continue to support, you are a David, or you rally up support with the people and you make a statement and you leave loudly. Right. It, it's, I mean, I even wrote in my notes, like, maybe we could ask each other these questions. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just, it's so ridiculous, like, that, that this is, again, it's like we make these distinctions, he makes these distinctions, we must be fully one or fully the other. And he implies that only one leads to life and the other is death. Right. Whether it's a literal death like for Absalom or whether it's like a spiritual death of like you have too many feelings and the devil's going to get you because you have too many feelings. Right. And it's especially wild because in this story, we're not even we're not even a generation removed from David having taken over someone's kingdom. Mm -hmm. And half of his story is about telling the guys that are with him, the guys who left with him not to kill this dude. Like, so David didn't leave alone. So it's like, what? So sometimes it is, it is okay. And like, for me, for me, like in my own story, and most of the people I know, we left quietly. Mm -hmm. Like I left quietly. And I remember saying, I mean, I'm telling, I'm telling you guys, we're having this conversation. I want you to know why I'm leaving, Mm -hmm. but I'm not taking anyone with me. I'm not trying to get anyone else to go. Like these were thoughts I was having Mm -hmm. and reassurances that I was giving. I'm not taking anyone. And I feel like that's that's what happens 95% of the time. Mm-hmm. People leave quietly by themselves. They don't even, oh, yeah, I'm just not going anymore. I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm just figuring some stuff out. I'm just, you know, it's really tired. I'm just, just whatever. But it's me. It's a me thing. Doesn't concern you. Don't worry about it. Like, we are, we are taught to leave quietly, mm-hmm. and we do. It's that, like, toxic humility or, like, that honor culture of yeah. just, like, if you have an offense or an opinion and you're going to do something extreme, like leave the church, you better do so as quietly and silently as you can. Like, we don't even want to notice you're gone because we're so busy and excited and the lights are so so flashy. But then to almost by default, because we disagree, because we are saying there's more to the narrative, or we are free to have a different narrative, we are the ones that are dangerous. We've been, we've taken the bait. The devil's gotten us. He snatched us up. He got us. He got me. He got me, I guess. So, yeah. But in the preface of the book, John said, the book you hold is quite possibly the most important confrontation with truth you'll encounter in your lifetime. And then later he said, you know, this book is not a theory. It is God's word made flesh. Is this God's word made flesh? Is this the most important confrontation with truth? Have you encountered more important (laughs) truth (laughs) in your lifetime? Oh, yes. I think anybody that needs to stand up and say that they are the definitive most important encounter with truth, I think that immediately should move this to the bottom of your reading priority list. Show me. You don't have to tell me. Show me. Now, I know in some of our spaces, 
evangelical spaces, church spaces, like we don't want to think lest I would have to have an opinion, lest I would have to feel my emotions, lest I would have to own places where I agree to disagree or mountains I want to die on because I wholeheartedly believe differently. It's easier to just turn off. So as as a teacher, this was a paper. What? How would you grade this? What are some of the notes you would write? In the margins. I would say this could be a lot more concise. Define your terms. The grammar's good. There's no glaring grammar errors. Structurally, it's a decent paper. I I would stress, if this were a student I was working with, I would say, like, you need to put those Bible verses into context and get rid of a few of the anecdotes and let the text take the reader on the journey rather than the anecdotal, circumstantial, which is a majority of the chapter. Less is more. More matter with less art, perhaps. Yeah. So who, (laughs) he didn't write this for his teacher. Who did, what, who was this book for? Who is this book for? It is for me 10 years ago, who was looking for more reasons to separate myself from myself, and to live in a agency-less world where, like, I just found scripture to justify hating myself enough that I could go through the motions. I think this is for church people. I, I, I don't think he sat down and wrote this with an ulterior motive of, if I can get this in enough evangelical folks' hands... I will then be able to control the narrative and everybody's going to run around afraid of being offended and we're all just going to move forward into the future as this monolith of people who have numbed ourselves to our emotions. I don't think he sat down with that goal. I think he believes that being offended without justification leads to sin. And I think he believes there are spiritual forces at play that take advantage of sin in on the spiritual level. But who this is for is this is for church people who are trying to find a self-help book to get them to stay in line. It's for people who are policing themselves in church spaces. I'd say so. So looking at this book from the view that everything, everything is permissible. I cannot stop John Mm -hmm. Bevere. From right, I mean, I could stop him if I murdered him, but I don't want to do that. So, but that would mean you support his message. <laughs> <I know. laughs> right here, folks, Janice Legata. She's John Buffett's right hand. No. <laughs> loyal to a fault. Loyal, not... loyal. She's speaking no. at the conference. I will tune, not murder him. Tune in the TPN. <laughs> They're on a panel together. Okay, I'm, I'm going to stop. I'm so sorry. <laughs> So yeah, so everything, everything that my best friend John Bevere writes is permissible. It's allowed, but not everything is beneficial. Mm-hmm. So on a scale from one to 10, 10 beneficial for everyone. Five, it's neutral, it's permissible, it's there, it's not doing anything. Down to one, harmful for everyone. Where would you put this book? This is a great question. I want to say it is just shy of neutral i would put it at like a three and a half to four i here's my caveat i think after reading this chapter and hearing what you have said about the book that my reading that this will put you into a mindset where you are willing to be steamrolled where you have divorced yourself from your own emotions your own ability to reserve uh, to resolve conflict that on an individual level if you just want to be a good christian who reads the literature and goes to church and can put on their smiley happy face on an individual level a book that's going to put you into that mindset is not the worst thing but on a societal level as a collective whole The more people we have walking around half asleep, the more space we have for all the horrible things about this society to take hold. Because if you are numb enough to your own emotions when you and Miss Susie from down the road have a conflict at the church bake sale, you probably are still divorced from your emotions when it is time to confront racism in your own community. When somebody comes out, when somebody is in crisis. 
And if we are, if people are walking around numb and unable to press in and unable to check their ego, be guided by their emotions and their intuition, like that's an awful place to be. I mean, and that's, I'll say it. I live outside of the Twin Cities. um, And that is something that a lot of suburban folks are struggling with right now when to speak up, how to speak up, when to listen, how to listen, because so many have been trained maybe to not notice or not care or not have an opinion, right? I'm in the middle, I'm neutral, I see all sides. Well, that's a pretty dangerous place to be. And so is this the worst thing I ever read? I was expected to be more offended by the text. Instead, I was like, he says a lot without saying a lot. But I think it can be one of a a dangerous reading list that is a course to giving up your power to systems you might not even understand are at play. Because if you're reading this kind of stuff and taking one man's perspective, you probably aren't looking at history with much more of a critical lens or politics or current events or even art and and at what point do you cease to just experience the beauty of range of human emotions if you've just said the most godly response is to allow myself to be steamrolled and to fear my emotions and to fear speaking up yeah well that's the that's the highest score it's gotten so far oh gosh Uh oh (laughs) so it's it's doing great no one, no one is murdering yet. So we all love it. We love this. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. Um, so John Bevere chose offense. He said, this is the bait of Satan. He went around the world with this. It's still going around right. the world. Like he has been platformed in many, many major churches like this. This message has been allowed to spread. So if you were allowed to pick an issue as the bait of Satan, to write a book, to go around the world, to go into all these churches, to make them face and confront one issue, what would that bait of Satan be? So my my bait of Satan, mm-hmm. privilege. I think there are way too many American Christians who have equated privilege to godliness mm-hmm. or privilege to neutrality and now that the systems are being put into check now that things are being called into question it feels like losing status or privilege is in these people's minds oppression and i think if people knew the difference between privilege and oppression there would be a lot more empathy and I think that that is probably, I I think that privilege at play, whether racial, economic, gender, whatever have you, until you take some time to figure out what your invisible knapsack is, so to speak, and until you understand that life is just easier for some than it is for others because it's not a level playing field, and that people gaining a voice or a platform or rights or finally taking on issues that should have been dealt with hundreds of years ago, that is not an affront to you as a person, privileged human. It is just other people finally being treated like humans with a baseline for what it, what human rights and dignity are. And I think that too many people unfortunately, are still seeing privilege as favor, privilege as godliness, privilege as I've done the right thing, I've earned this, without understanding that sometimes a 10-mile drive would take you to a completely different universe, a completely different baseline for how life is lived. And they're not confronting that for all it is. But I think there's also so much out there. Like, why would I need to go on tour? Like, let's platform somebody who's already doing such great work. You know, let's have a panel. Let's get let's get people up on stage who know a lot more about that than I do. Ooh, good stuff. That's that's something I'd actually support. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> not just not murdering you. Yeah. Actual <laughs> well, thank you. True support. <laughs> so, not recommending this book to anyone, even though my best friend wrote it. Don't don't buy the book. <laughs> what is something that you would recommend for people? Something that I would recommend. Um, one a beautiful text that I've been going through. Um, the Course in Miracles is the textbook for students or the workbook for students is it's almost like a devotional but it's this marriage of american christian a lens of american christianity or or american catholicism with sort of equal platforming of psychology and new age and can i just say it is a it is a life-changing text it it forces you to meditate on things that you think everybody thinks only because you've been told everybody thinks them and there's there even talks a lot about being offended and choosing your battles and being peaceful with yourself quieting that internal turmoil before confronting when to let people go when to confront it's it's really a beautiful it's complex it's it's thick and then just because we were talking about the bait of Satan, right? And we never defined who Satan was. I think more people need to read Dante Alighieri, the great poet. And if I were to recommend a palate cleanser, Mary Jo Bang's translation of the Inferno is beautiful and, and contemporary and true to the original as I understand it. But that's where we get our image of the scary monsters and a hell full of punishment and torment like that all is not bible that all is not necessarily jesus this was a poem that was written as a political protest that kind of became the standard for italian literature for a very long time a piece of fiction a piece of political fiction mm-hmm. but it's where we get the idea of monsters and, and and demons and if you're a thief you're gonna have to chase around other people because there's not going to be enough body parts to go around in hell and Things, things of that nature, the lake of yeah. the lake of fire and ice, and and all of these things we just think are biblical. But Mary Jo Bang's translation is is one I've gone back to a couple of times because it's entertaining and insightful and literary and just enjoyable. You don't have to walk away saying, you know what, I believe that Satan really exists in the ninth circle of hell. I believe there really are layers with all these punishments. It's just a fun story. <laughs> fun. Well, you fun loosely. It, it's. It is what it is. It's 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 not a textbook. So I would say those two, from in the realm of metaphysics and in the realm of literature, if you need something to cleanse yourself of this idea that being offended and seeking revenge is going to leave room for the devil, do some of your own work and your own reading and enjoy yourself. <laughs> would you say it's a hell of a story? It's a hell of a story. It's a hell of a tale. <laughs> All right. Any any closing thoughts? Final words? This has been so much fun. Thank you for the opportunity. I this has been fantastic. I think maybe everybody needs to do this when they feel ready in the in the ex church people realm. Like find a bad book, analyze it, and realize, wow, I gave my power to a lot of interesting thinkers, and then contrast it with something that makes you feel happy. Take care of yourself. Have grace for yourself. Laugh about how much of a dum-dum you were. I think, I don't know, it, it was healing for me. It was a great exercise in, in self-reflection. So thank you. And in closing. Do not be afraid to allow the Holy Spirit to reveal any unforgiveness or bitterness. The longer you hide it, the stronger it will become and the harder your heart will grow. Stay tender-hearted. How? Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. Ephesians 4, 31-32 I hate this chapter. I hate this book. I hate that it has been allowed to exist and to prosper. I hate that it still exists. This book should 100% be taken out of circulation. This is one of the shortest chapters in a while, only eight and a half pages long, but it is so toxic, so wrong, so privileged white male, so dangerous. And considering the way he came in so hot with this absolute fuck shit chapter, John Bevere is stunningly cold. 
And this is where I kind of burrow deeper into my thought that cis het privileged white men don't need to be writing books offering Christian life advice to anyone other than cis het privileged white men at this point. And I honestly don't know why anyone would argue with that, could argue with that from any point of view other than white supremacy. Like to think that God would think a cishet privileged white man would be the best to speak to the most people, would need a cishet privileged white man to speak to the most people about anything, it's like, why? They literally have the narrowest, coldest perspective. Just in this chapter, John Bevere's understanding of and empathy for sexual assault is awful, it's non-existent, it's flat, it's cold, Amnon planned and premeditated to rape Tamar. And John mentions her in this story because he has to, but all he can talk about is how it affected her position. Amnon disgraced a virgin royal princess. He devastated her life with shame. The perfect existence of a princess had become a nightmare. The perfect existence of a princess, John? In a world, system, and economy where women were property? Like, what about Tamar's existence was perfect? A princess? This isn't a Disney movie. Tamar's value was never hers, it was David's. And just like David, John Bevere does not care about, does not spare a thought for Tamar as a person. He has words for her disgrace, her shame, her defilement. He refers to her as being defiled by Amnon, and then Absalom as being defiled by his bitterness. So in this story, we have Tamar and Absalom, Amnon and David, two of them are rapists, but it's the other two that John Bevere labels as defiled. Because John Bevere has the narrowest perspective and he doesn't have the range to see any perspective other than his own. And I get so emotional thinking about this story and thinking about Absalom and the bamboozle that white Christianity has pulled on us all to have us empathizing with villains and holding them up as heroes. David had some good days and was at some point a man after God's own heart, but power corrupts and David was corrupted. And I wish, I wish we had all been taught, all been allowed to read these stories without agendas. Because how different would Christianity be? Would churches be? Would John Bevere be if we were able to see David's trajectory as a cautionary tale? It's the extreme cognitive dissonance for me. Before David, Saul was chosen as king by God. He was good with God and then he wasn't. So it's not like God's stamp of approval is, is automatically permanent. If it was, this book wouldn't even exist. Because John's not writing this to secular people. This is for church folk who, according to his worldview, are going sideways by feeling feelings about bad things that have been done to them. But to his mind, men in power are somehow immune to getting off track. I just make it make sense without misogyny and white supremacy. Anyhow, let's see. The word offended is used nine times. The word offense is used 15 times. Offensive and offend do not make appearances. Dan said he doesn't think John Bevere set out to write this book with the intention of harming people, and I don't know. I can't believe that he really believed this toxic shit, believed he had stumbled upon something significant and was saying something profound back in 1994, but the fact that he is still pushing this book, that his faith, his conscience, his view of God, of justice, of leadership and authority have not matured at all in nearly 30 years, that's frightening. And I don't know his full origin story, but he is a full villain. It's giving scummy King David vibes. And sometimes he accidentally says the quiet part out loud, like when he says, Perhaps David should have taken action against Amnon. Perhaps a leader has areas of error. Who is the judge? You are the Lord. Remember that if you sow strife, you will reap it. John Bevere thinks leadership, thinks he and men like him are above reproach. They only answer to God and can only be corrected by God, so everybody else just needs to keep it moving. And that is so dangerous. It's just setting the stage for all kinds of abuse. To equate holding people accountable with sowing strife is dangerous. It's dangerous and dishonest. And I feel bad for the young John Bevere who wrote this book, probably trying to feel better about himself and make sense of the abuses he was seeing and overlooking. Looking. And I feel incredible anger at the smug current day John Bevere who either doesn't know how stupid he is or is actively taking advantage of how abusive the evangelical system is. And either way, he is an unsafe and unsavory character. And not even he deserves an eternity with the kind of God he believes in, but he can have it. Meanwhile, look for me among the people who aren't afraid to be loyal to justice and to risk their positions, risk it all on behalf of those who need protection. 
As a writer and a musician, as a worshiper in Christianity, David was held up as the prototype, but forget that. Team Absalom, all the way. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Bad Book Club. I certainly hope you had a better time listening than I did reading that chapter. If you are enjoying this podcast, please remember that sharing is caring. Tell your friends, rate and review us on Apple, and remember to show love to my guests. Hit the show notes for info on where and how to find, follow, and support them, and to check out the links to better things than the bait of Satan. Feel free to hit me via my email, my DMs, or the comment section on Instagram if you have any thoughts, comments, or questions, and that's it for now. I am Janice Legato. And this has been an episode of Bad Words, but here are some good ones. From Toni Morrison. I am a storyteller and therefore an optimist, a firm believer in the ethical bend of the human heart, a believer in the mind's appetite for truth and its disgust with fraud. I am a believer in the power of knowledge and the ferocity of beauty. So from my point of view, your life is already artful, waiting, just waiting for you to make it art.